Baruch creation, namely the physical universe. That's translated today into a study of chemistry, physics, biology. All of that is going to give us a greater understanding of our Creator. And the way to come to love our Creator is through a study of these sciences. That was the Hanabam's position. And it was true a thousand years ago. And of well, I, I think as well, it's definitely true today. That if one were to study these scientists, then one comes close to Akadosh Baruch Hu. Now, let's think of the alternative. We mentioned last week that a thousand years ago, as well as today, there are those who reject this dialogue. We have no concern or interest in this dialogue. Some will actually simply ignore the dialogue. And some will actually, not only ignore it, but deny it. And say that the truth of science has nothing to do with Torah and Mitzvot. Not only has nothing to do with it, but they are false. They're actually false. There are specific areas where we could focus in, <clears throat> which we have done in the past past years. When one speaks about the issue of physics and astrophysics, there are two critical issues that one wants to think about. One is the beginning of the universe. We have a clear cut teaching as to what we from the Torah think is the beginning of the universe. etc. As well as the age of the universe. Here we have a teaching which according to the simple meaning and reading of the text itself is six days and the seventh day Baruch Hu rested. Now of course science Excuse me. Science comes <coughs> to this, I mean, with a very different understanding. Science comes to this and says that we are able to now estimate that the universe is between 12 and 20 billion years old. Something very far removed from the teachings of Bereshit. But that's only understanding Bereshit on its shot level. There may be deeper teachings in Bereshit that we want to analyze. And over here we had discussed two different points of view. There is one of the Ezer. Again, all people that I'm quoting have legitimate degrees, people that know their fields extremely well. And he says, yes, of course, as a religious man, I believe that, that the Torah is 100% true. And yet, I, I'm a scientist, I mean, I'm a scientist from MIT, I have a PhD in physics, I now teach at Bar Ilan University, and yet I also believe in the truth of science. But these two don't seem to correspond. How do I get it to correspond? So his position on this is a fascinating one. He says, well, I am going to interpret the Pesukim Bereshit non-literally. Who said Shana or Yom means day, 24-hour day, especially before the creation of the sun. And therefore, I have a wider range of options and I will interpret the opening Pesukim in a much more non-literal fashion and therefore, I will correspond my science with my Torah. Now, you may be happy and not happy with that option. I'm going to present options and we have to see what's an appropriate option as we go along. On the other hand, Menachem Schroeder wrote a similar book. He's a religious man. PhD, University of Chicago in Physics. Teaches now in Yerushalayim. And of course, he's a man of Torah. He's a man of Physics. And he says, no, you could understand the Pesukim Bereshit exactly according to the Peshat. It was, in fact, six days of 24-hour duration. And yet, his Hadush is that that six-day, 24-hour period of time equals 12 billion years. How could it be? So he says, it's easy. In the post-Einsteinian world, where there's relativity of time, time is relative, and an intense gravitational field can make time go faster or slower depending upon how intense the gravitation actually is. In other words, where you are and I are and I am could actually be two different records of time keeping. Meaning that Eli, who's on another planet, right now, right? 
in the planet, wherein, from his point of view, may only be six days going by, I'm in a much more intense gravitational field, and therefore maybe 12 billion years. So, Borei Olam, where Borei Olam is counted from one perspective, and people are counting from another perspective. So, he's saying that, in fact, mathematically, you can equate the two, where a 24-hour period of time equals here, let's say, equals 12 billion, let's say, or one-sixth of 12 billion years at another place. Welcome. Good to see you. So, he says, in post-Einsteinian physics, time is relative. And in pre-Einsteinian physics, Newtonian physics, time and space are absolute. No longer is that viewed that way, but rather, they are, they are relative. So, here you have, actually, two attempts of trying to correspond science and religion. And again, my point would be that one has to explore these options for a number of different reasons. First of all, because as Jews we are concerned about truth. We had read, seen the Gemara with Masechet Sanhedrin. I'm sorry, Pesachim. In Pesachim, Pesachim, as well, we had seen the Gemara Masechet Yoma. We had seen the Gemara in past years all of which tell us very important principles. First principle that we learn is that the rabbis of old 2,000 years ago dealt with these issues. I am not the first. Ram was not the first. Going back 2,000 years, the rabbis of the Talmud dealt with these issues. We're concerned about these issues. Good. And more significantly, Gemara Yoma tells us, God feels truth. You have to pursue truth. Well, Salvechik is one who had taken this notion as a human being, as one who's created the image of God, <coughs> has the obligation the Kishua. He has the obligation of ruling this earth and conquering and mastering it. How do you master space? By knowing it. His book on the lonely man of faith spends the first chapter telling us that one has the obligation of knowledge, of knowing. And whatever area or field it is, one has the obligation, the religious obligation of knowing and mastering all that we see and, and is part of our domain. Of course, there's a Shabbat in there. Shabbat tells man to do what? Cease, rest, stop, know your boundaries, know your limits. You cannot go on and on and on. Shabbat tells you to stop and know that you are not God. We've often said before that the biggest problem throughout history has been that man pretended or thought he was God. And therefore has the right over other people to rule, to do as he pleases. No. You are obligated to develop your Salem and Okim to all d- dimensions, in all directions, in all ways, in all fashions, through an acquiring of knowledge, knowing. Nothing is off base for us as human beings, creating the image of God, on the one hand. On the other hand, on Shabbat, you cease your creative, exploratory attempts at discovering the universe. You cease it. You stop. Take a step back. And in that, you recognize Borei Olam as the up- absolute, ultimate power that there is. But okay. So... Al-Gimarot and Haramban before and many others, Sa'aja, Ababanel, many others have in fact taught us that one has the obligation of seeking truth in whatever area it is and certainly we want to have a dialogue with science because it's, if it is in fact true, we have to know it. As human beings, we have to know truth in whatever manifestation it is, learn, know, conquer, explore intellectually. Let's think of the alternative. If we fail to dialogue, let's say we close ourselves off from dialogue, then what happens? What's the downside of that? 
Many will tell you, has told me, that if you study the science, there's a downside. What's the downside? Well, their concern would be that you'll, sorry, you may reject Torah. Correct. Many have studied and rejected Torah. Many. Dr. Madelon, someone we all know, had mentioned to me close to, um, I'd say 30, 35 years ago, that had it not been for Rabbi Faur, he may have rejected Torah. He was studying science. He was beginning medical school. He's getting very much involved in an exploration of science. And he didn't see his correspondence to Torah. But Rabbi Faur came along. It was a teacher going back these uh, two or three decades. And he taught him a way of corresponding both. So Rabbi Faur was the right man at the right hour having had a way of explaining to a young student of science how to correspond the two, which kept Dr. Madeline on right track. He mentioned this to me on the corner of Avenue K and Ocean Park in front of the old Me'ashari Mo'be Torah. 30 years ago, or 35 years ago. Because I had the same questions I've seen to him about these issues, and he made the point to me. It's interesting to know whether he remembers that point. I have to ask him. He may not remember the conversation with me, but he said, oh, I remember because I was young and impressionable. He may not remember it. But that is a fact as <clears throat> he told it to me. Now, if you don't engage in dialogue, you run the risk of becoming irrelevant to all those that are listening to the scientists, students or professional scientists. We have children going to school. We have an expanding knowledge. You're on the Internet. You're watching PBS. You're watching television programs. You're reading Newsweek, which we will see in a few minutes, which we have seen two years ago three years ago, we want to see it again. You're reading popular newspapers, the Times every single week. It has to raise questions for your children at whatever age they're at reading all these issues. My daughter's in eighth grade, she reads Newsweek. Pashut, she reads Newsweek. And kids are going to school. What's they going to Hillel? Then they are studying science. These questions come up. They have to be addressed. If you fail to engage in dialogue, then you're going to lose those children you're going to become irrelevant to them because you're not going to be speaking the same language as they. That's number one, <clears throat> on, a, on a more religious level. But I would say on a different level, if we don't engage in dialogue, then we have no shot at shaping the debate. What debate? number of illustrations. Let me take a past illustration and a future illustration. Interesting question. About 55 years ago, Harry Truman... 1945, made this incredible decision, a mind-boggling decision, to drop the bomb. That crossed a threshold, both in the field of science, as well as in military terms and political terms. Now, is it not obvious to everybody that when you make a decision that's going to shape the world's policy, that that should be a religious decision as well? Now, he may have consulted. He may not have consulted. I don't know. But it was not only a political slash military decision. He's dropping a bomb that's not only going to take the massive numbers of lives and affect the earth for who knows how many years to come in terms of radioactivity, but also now you make a decision where it's okay to use massive death to save your country. It's an interesting question. He said it's the right, the right answer was to do so, and many people will agree with him. You saved... They say a million U.S. servicemen who would have died had they had to invade Japan. That's the number. 
Edward Teller, in an article and commentary, Edward Teller was, of course, one of the people that had been involved in shaping of the bomb. He raised the question. It was about eight or nine years ago in an article and commentary that we had read. What is, whether or not it was right. Could you argue that it was not right? Well, you've opened up the door. Now, as a result of that, 50 years later, you have enough nuclear weapons to destroy the earth, what, a thousand times over? More? Frightening possibilities. If Truman did not do so, then the history of the nuclear debate could have been other, could have been different. Now, you may not be fully concerned with this because in the last five, eight, ten years, haven't had a problem. Because Russia has been very cooperative in destroying its nuclear armament and haven't had an issue. But those of you who are a bit older than ten years ago, remember that we were petrified when Khrushchev is banging his shoe on at the podium of the UN saying, I will bury you. He meant it literally. Peshut, it's simple. He could bury us physically, literally, nuclearly. When you had in 1962 the Cuban Missile Crisis, how far were we from nuclear destruction? And as you know, I mentioned that thing a couple of weeks ago, the tapes are out. The privately recorded tapes of President Kennedy, which only he knew was recording, according to the, uh, the book, are out. And he records how close we were to that possibility of nuclear confrontation. How close we were. Was he right? Was he wrong? Who would want to be in those shoes? Now, all this goes back to the fact that Truman made this decision. And it certainly was a military decision. It certainly was a political decision. But I would say it's no less of a religious decision. When you're going to unleash that kind of power, killing that many people in one fell swoop, there has to be a sense of the ethical questions that are involved. And of course, religion is concerned with ethics and religion in the, in the broader sense. And certainly, we should be part of that debate. Understanding what nuclear armaments are all about. We have to advise presidents to tell them what's going on. Now, it's interesting. Would you not say that 90%, if not more, of the world is, in some sense or other, religious? Is that not the case? I'm probably underestimating the number. Right? Yes. You have the keys. No, I don't. Check them inside, Mordecai. Go look for the keys. That's what I'm doing. Go find the keys. Where are we? Where? Wherever you left them. Where did I leave? Where did you leave them? You had them. You locked the door. Next. So, if we do, in fact, make the point that 90% of the world at least is religious, you're going to make decisions that is going to affect multi-millions of people, if not billions of people, then of course you want a representative of a religious establishment or a number of them discussing this issue with whoever has the power. If you refuse to dialogue, then you're irrelevant. If you cannot converse in the same terms as the scientists, then why should they even speak to you? You don't have a clue as to what they're talking about. So you want to be careful about that. One second. Similarly, take another example that we spoke about two weeks ago. In cloning or gene manipulation, these are scientific issues, biological issues, but also these are religious issues as well. And when you're going to decide any issue that's going to affect the lives of a majority of the world's population, then automatically those decisions, cloning, gene manipulation, whatever the case may be, they are and they become religious issues. And for us to lay claim, to have something significant to say to the scientific community, we have to understand 
the issues. Bring them here, Mordechai, so we don't lose them again. I made a mistake once. I'll make it twice. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sorry, Eli. Just uh, to address this point, uh, it's a shame in Israel where you do have a lot of rabbis who have political power and do have the ear of the government. Don't use that um, to try to set policy on other areas. Correct. Other than like our schools. I mean, they have an agenda. But their agenda is not as broad as dealing with the scientific issues yeah, the, or cloning issues. It's an amazing where point. They could, if they wanted to, right. get out there and, and set some kind of policy. But I don't think it's an amazing point. I mean, it's it's really an incredibly incisive point. Water. Tea. Water. Water. Sorry. Yes. It's an incredible point because it strikes a chord in me. The chord is that there in Israel, you have an extraordinary opportunity of teaching the world a lesson of how a religious authority has what to say to a secular government but matters of public policy. Our Torah has so much to say about that in every which area. In every area. Whether it's welfare state, whether it's what you have to do in terms of the underclass, poverty-stricken people. What are your obligations as a government in war, in peace, in every which way that you can think of as well as money for science? You give money for science or feed the poor. What should you do? It's a religious question. It's a religious question. And it's a great opportunity. We don't have it in America. It's true. Separation of church and state. But you have a great opportunity where there's no separation of church and state that the rabbis could be bringing Torah values and impact upon government policy. And to the best of my knowledge, as much as I've read about these issues, I don't recall ever hearing even once where a rabbinic authority in Israel stood up and made a religious point politically. Or a political point from a religious point of view. They left. Because they don't have the credibility. They don't have the understanding. They're not on the same page. As Eli said, they're on, the, they're on their page. That's all we care about is our page. Money for our schools and our schools, that's all we care about. But there's a whole world out there that has to hear your religious message. Are there religious values involved in being a lawyer? Yes, there are. And being a businessman? Yes, there are. Being a stockbroker? Yes, there are. Can I lie as a stockbroker? No, I cannot lie as a stockbroker. Whatever the case may be, in all areas are the religious values. We have religious values that should impact upon the scientific community. Absolutely, yes. It's not simply science which has any ethical dimensions to it. It does not. Science is a pure discipline trying to describe the physical laws of nature. Religion, on the other hand, explains the spiritual, ethical implications of the world. It tells you not how the world is, but why the world is. Religion wants to have a statement about why we are here as a government. Why are we here as a government? What do we have to do? Religion has a broader perspective on the values that a government should have, or the scientific community should have. And of course, Eli is right that we don't see that. It should be coming out of Israel. It should be a great model for the world. That if a politician has a question, let him consult with a rabbi. One of the Kiddush Hashem's that were extraordinary is when one of the presidents of Israel, I think it was um, Zalman, Zalman Shazad, I think it was, who went to consult with the Lubavitcher Rebbe about various issues of government. I don't know if that was only pro forma. I don't know if he really meant it. I don't know if he really had a, an interest in it. But when I recall it happening, it was wonderful to, to read about. He had a, a head of a government going to consult with Lubavitcher Rebbe. Now, wanting to consult with the rabbis in Israel is a good question. 
I don't know why he didn't consult with the rabbis in Israel. But he did not. He goes to the Bible to Rebbe and he speaks about issues. That's important to know what the religious perspective is. He was worried. He was very okay, that's perhaps the answer that I make. Yes, of course, you know he had a degree in science as well from the Sorbonne. So he was an incredible personality that did have that broader perspective that a person needs to have to respect. So what I'm saying over here is if you don't have that perspective and that awareness, that conversational awareness, then you cannot make an impact upon it. When we talk about issues such as brain death, we touched upon it last week, you're going to make halakhic pronouncements on that issue. And Moshe Feinstein had to have a conversation with a world-famous neurologist in order to decide what exactly is brain death. And life and death issues hang on this issue. I know Dr. Ricky Grazi is an infertility specialist, a very close friend of mine. And he consults often with rabbis. He's one of the top people in the field of infertility. And he consults often with rabbis in the field about what's allowed and what's not allowed. In virtue of fertilization, um, host mothers, all kinds of issues that go on. Many, many issues go on. And as well, many people that he sees consult with rabbis. Creating life is a religious issue. He's a scientist. He's a physician. But yet, he understands the limits of what he's doing and realizes that he must in fact, consult with rabbis, and some of his most difficult issues are when a couple wants to do that which is not halakhically allowed, he's a halakhic Jew. He must consult, and he cannot do so. As a shomer mitzvot person, cannot do that which may be professionally appropriate, but religiously inappropriate. So, he has that dialogue going in an appropriate way. Now, this dialogue does not mean that we agree with everything that science says. We do not necessarily accept that their statements as facts. We appreciate when scientists don't enter into the realm of religion because they don't understand religious values, religious, the way religious, religion works, the dynamics of a religious system. Einstein should not, make, should not be making pronouncements about what religion is or should be. He has no training in that field. He's not a philosopher. He's not a theist in the traditional sense of the word. So he should not be making those statements. His job is to understand science and explain what science is to the theist to the ethicists, to the philosophers, and they can have a dialogue and hopefully discuss it. I have an article that we're not going to do this week where this exactly took place between two world-famous physicists. One is a guy named, uh, I forget the name of the atheist, but remember the theist is, I think, um, from England, Pennington, I think it's Pennington, who were brought together by, I think it was WNPR uh, News, and they had a dialogue as to this question. Does physics indicate God or not God? It's a fantastic article that's four or five pages. It's worth reading to look at maybe next week if we have the time for it. But the dialogue does not mean necessarily that we agree with all that science says. We don't. We don't have to. Unless it's proven as factually true. If it's proven as factually true, then of course we have to accept it. Because it's truth. And God feels truth that we have to... But, but science, Rabbi, um, doesn't utilize the logic of the heart. That's correct. Which, so that's again, correct. That's why they can't be on the same page. Correct. Judaism, That's know, correct. That it's a whole different dynamic. Theory. Agreed. But they still does not mean that we can't have a bridge across both worlds. Mm-hmm. Rabbi Salavetsky, of course, was very conversant with these issues of, of science and religion. One of his passions was physics and, and mathematics, besides Torah learning. And he had studied that as a graduate student in Berlin in his uh, early days and has his PhD in, in philosophy. So certainly, you're right, no doubt. It's two different disciplines. It's two different modes of thought. That does not mean that we should not dialogue and cross-fertilize. Cross Whereas, again, I am making the claim over here that science will teach us a lot about Borei Olam, 
as strange as that may sound to you, because I'm going to learn the universe from science, and learning the universe means I'm going to learn about the Koch Baruch Hu, which we'll see in a few moments. On the other hand, science has a lot to learn from the values, the ethics, and even modes of thought of the theists. At one point in the history of the world, these two disciplines were far apart, even as recently as 50 years ago. Not that simple. Nothing is that simple well, in this well, world. You know, religion and science. They were very far apart. Mm-hmm. However, now they are coming much closer together. Mm-hmm. In some of the books that we have studied, we have seen how now science is coming to this extraordinary point of saying yes to religion. Maybe not organized religion in many cases. Yes, they have their problem with organized religion, which I, of course, understand. Because sometimes organized religion loses its spontaneity, loses its vitality, loses its overarching view. Sometimes organized religion becomes only organized and loses many of its religious aspects to it. That's true. And that's something what Eli's talking about in terms of the state of Israel. The rabbinate there is focused on its organization of yeshivot. It's not worried about the values, the ethics, spirituality that really should go with religion. One of the issues is, is a synagogue a place where a person can grow spiritually? It's a major question. I'm not sure if the answer to that is always yes. When you have massive synagogues with huge throngs of people, you sometimes have a very organized tefillah, but it may not be a spiritual tefillah. Sometimes the place to find religion is not in a large synagogue, but rather, welcome, good to see you. It's a three-year absence. You remember two years? You remember the address? Baruch Haba. So sometimes you could find spirituality much more intensely in a small shtibel. One of the famous narratives of this issue is regarding Franz Rosenzweig. Heard his name? One of the great philosophers of the 20th century, Jewish philosophers of the 20th century. Nobody heard his name here? Franz Rosenzweig. He wrote one of the most profound works of Jewish philosophy called The Star of Redemption. Brilliant work. Extraordinarily brilliant work. And he was living at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And in that, he a reformed Jew. No, zero practice, nothing. And, of course, in that milieu, in Germany, at that point in time, if you had <coughs> what you did was, as many Jews did, you converted to Christianity. That was viewed as the religion that was appropriate, that was intellectual, that was coming of age, Christianity, a lot based on Hegel's philosophy. Hegel had seen Christianity as being the most sophisticated formulation of religion at that point in time. Judaism was great in its time, it brought the world mind. Well, that's fantastic Judaism, Hegel said. But I'll do it. And now we have Christianity, which is a step above and beyond Judaism. Of course, we reject that. And, but everybody was flowing in the ideas of Hegelianism because of evolutionary biology, which also led into this. Many disciplines did. And Rosenzweig's cousin, Eugene Rosenstock, good Jewish guy, he converts to Christianity and becomes a pastor. They tell us him... You have to convert as well. You know it's right in your heart. It's truth in your heart. You must do so. He struggled. 1909. He's not sure. How can I do this? I can't. I must. I must. I must. It's what the mind says for you to do. Because Christianity in those days, Protestant Christianity, not Catholicism, but Protestant Christianity was intellectually viable and it made sense of the current thoughts of the time. You must do this. He says, yes, but I'm going to convert Christianity the way Yeshu did. What do you mean? Yeshu was intensely Jewish, was he not? And then he founded Christianity. He was a from guy. He was one of the great rabbis of that period of time. He's quoted in the Talmud. I'm not quoting. 
he didn't found it. What I mean by that is he's, he's the he yes that's what I mean. Agreed, absolutely agreed. Yes, symbolically I mean he found Christianity. He's the leading light of Christianity, right? You don't buy down to Paul, do you? Well, yeah. That was a, that was a loaded that was a load right that was a loaded question. So what happens over here is that he says Roosevelt says I'm going to come to Christianity to Judaism to Christianity through Judaism. I'm going to take the most intense day of the Jewish calendar year. Celebrate that day intensely, and then I'm ready to convert. So what day did he choose? Yom Kippur. He's walking in the streets of Berlin, 1909 or 1910, I forget the exact date. He sees a shtibel. He walks in. Small little place. There's 150, 50, 60 Hasidim praying. Strange. He walks in. It's late, 10, 11 o'clock. Their heads are covered. They're swaying in prayer. He's mesmerized by the experience. He spends the entire period of time in that synagogue. He's so captured, carried away by the experience of spirituality, of intense religiosity, of that one day, in the most unlikely of places, he finishes Yom Kippur, the writes cousin back, I have found Judaism, I no longer need to convert to Christianity, Judaism is fine. In that small area, he found intense religiosity. So I often ask myself the question, on Yom Kippur over here, if somebody walked in, if a reformed Jew walked into our synagogue, would he, would he find intense religiosity? Would he, would he find spirituality? I like to believe the answer is yes, but I'm not always sure. It's a very painful awareness to many rabbis that your, your Yom Kippur is not what it should be. But okay, so the point over here is that <clears throat> religion brings intense spirituality what it has to share with the scientific world as well. We have an awful lot to give. Einstein cannot speak about spirituality. cannot speak about ethical issues because he doesn't have training in that field. One has to be trained. I'm not going to speak about the nuclear physics. He should speak about religious ethics either. But there needs to be a dialogue between one and the other. Now, from a Jewish point of view, for 2,000 years, the rabbis have been dialoguing with the scientists. I mentioned it last week. I mentioned it again today. Gemara Sanhedrin. Gemara in Pesachim as well. Both of these record debates of the rabbis with the scientists or the philosophical spirits raising questions, answering issues all about physics and biology. And of course, a thousand years ago, the Rambam as well was intensely concerned about this issue. And therefore, the Rambam, as we read last week, told us about finding closest to God in the scientific world. Now, the Rambam, of course, mentioned this in a number of different areas, and through all of his works, he was intensely concerned about Chokhmah, science, philosophy. Not only in Moreh Nebuchim, but even in Mishneh Torah, as we quoted last week, but in Moreh Nebuchim as well, we had seen a number of different chapters, which we should be aware of, in part, 22, in part 2, part chapter 25, about creation of the world, in part 2, chapter 8, we had seen, where he says, that in the issue of the Gemara Pesachim, when the rabbis admitted, the rabbis said, they're right, we're wrong. In matters of science, we have to obey the scientists if they are, in fact, emit. Key word. If they are truthful, we follow it. The Ramam says that in areas of halakha, halakha reigns supremely, of course. It has its own discipline, its own dialogue. Good. But in matters of science, the rabbis do not have ruach HaKosh in that area. And if they stay themselves, they do their then they were, the rabbis said if the scientists are right, we're wrong. So fine, no problem with that. In chapter, part 2, chapter 8, as well as 
part through chapter 14. In both these chapters, the Ramah makes reference to the fact that the rabbis did not have any supernatural access to scientific knowledge that they themselves admit to. And even in, in, uh, in part 3, chapter 14, it talks about mathematics of that time and distances of the stars from each other. So the mathematics in those days was imperfect. Rabbis didn't get it right. It's fine. Maz of Halakha, Rabbi Supreme, in Maz of Science Mathematics, the Rabbis themselves admit to not having superior knowledge to the philosophers or scientists of that period of time. Yeah. Rabbis, those days used to comment on things like that? Yes, back to the Gemara, we had seen it. In the two years that you were not here, we had seen those Gemarot. Pesachim, Sadiq Dalad, Amud Bet. Is one source. And the Sanhedrin as well, sorry? You can't comment as a scientist, but you can comment as a religionist who has a vested interest in what you are doing as a scientist. Values and ethics and ideals is what we should be talking about. You're going to now split the atom. And that's going to unleash a tremendous amount of power. The main fact destroy the earth. Then I have an issue with that as a religionist. Now you may not agree with my religion. That's fine. But as a member of, you, as a member of the human race, which again has religious values, you have to respect that human race. Science is not created in a vacuum. So therefore, my point is that we have to dialogue. So, <clears throat> in multiple of sources that we could find, we've begun last week, but multiple sources, Sa'aja Gaon, Harambam, Rabahai Gaon, multiple sources, we could prove that this endeavor of dialoguing, of talking to, of understanding what they're doing is an appropriate endeavor for a Jewish mind to do. an interesting statement by Akhtar Yitzhak which was a 16th century Rabbi Yitzhak Arama he makes an interesting statement Hachmei Israel Ta'u Vihudu Al-Kan the rabbi referring to the same Gemara Pesachim Hachmei Israel the rabbis of Israel made a mistake and they admitted it so we should not be shy about saying it he says it people say it Rabbi Yudal Levi in part 1 of his Shira Kudari paragraph 66 as well as Sa'aja all speak about the obligation we have to pursue truth and that science is that pursuit of truth and we should have no qualms about it and in the words of the Rambam Shema Emet Misha Amara it's a famous phrase that every literal Jew should know listen to the truth from whatever its source I've used it many times where does the Rambam say that? to Perkei Avot Shemana Perakim the eight chapters here in this, this book of ethics and of spirituality and of free will he thinks about all this over here he says you must follow the truth from whatever source it comes I am going to survey the Greek philosophers the Islamic philosophers the Jewish philosophers all areas to find my truth and I'm not going to necessarily tell you where so I'm telling you right now I'm telling you right now in the beginning introduction that I'll find my truth from all over the place and you have the obligation of listening to truth from whatever its source. Of course, the Ramam also makes the same point with the Perkei Avot, Mishnah Avot, what does it say? Ta'amen. Jew, non-Jews have wisdom and follow it if it's true. Good. So, therefore, what we're saying over here is that we have an obligation of seeking out truth, philosophy, slash, science is a religious obligation for us, for us and therefore, it's something that should be pursued. Now, what we're going to do 
is to try to pursue this. We have done it over the course of the last two and three and four years. And we've taken the best books that we could on physics and we've discussed those two issues of the birth of the universe, cosmogony, which again is according to science of the Big Bang. And we've seen where that corresponds nicely to Ma'aseh Bereshit, very nicely, as well as the age of the universe, 12, 13 billion versus 7 days, and we try to correspond that in various ways, and there's much more to say about all these disciplines. We haven't ended the discussion whatsoever at this point. There's much to be said. There are many, many, many more sources, Judaic sources, that I could bring to show you the notion of relativity of time that in fact the 6 or 7 days equals 14 billion years. Easily. Look at the Ba'alim Midrash. Many, many, many have done so. Menachem Kasher, in his um, work on Torah uh, has a long excursus at the end of one of the, the first volume of Bereshit, where he quotes to you multiple sources which tries to show this correspondence. We didn't go through that source yet, but there's many sources that one can use. Good. As well, which another topic that you didn't really touch upon is the biological topic. Certainly, the notion of evolution raises very serious set of questions. Evolution raises a very serious set of questions for the believing Jew. It's discussed again in the popular literature. It's spoken about in classrooms. And periodically people ask the rabbi, Rabbi, did we really come from monkeys? Asked here and other places. And the rabbi has to be able to be honest to, his, to the truth of science as well as honest to the truth of Torah and what, and figure out exactly what's the truth in that area and what's an appropriate answer in that, in that area. <clears throat> and again if it comes to the point where science is speculating about evolution we're not obligated to necessarily follow it we should be conversant and think about it discuss it but we don't have to follow science unless it proves it as an absolute truth now not everything is going to prove it as an absolute truth it is true that there could be different variations about that all that we can deal with how absolute it is if 99% of biologists say that evolution is true then we should think about that as almost true and then see how does it fit into the world of Torah and again one can quote Rav Kuk who spoke about evolution as being true or the Tzvei Israel spoke about evolution as being true they all saw evolution as not contributing to Torah we could use those ideas to make us correspond the truth of Torah with the truth or possible truth of science regarding the issue of evolution all of that is something that has to be studied and corresponded. Now, we'd also seen, of course, the book of George Greenstein's Symbiotic Universe, that you remember, not to go over the details over there, but showing that the earth is so perfectly situated for life that had it been one billionth of a percent off, there'd be no life. Literally one hundredth of a billionth of a percent off, there'd be no life. We had seen that example on a number of different occasions, and it's extraordinary to, to say, to note, how perfect this environment of earth is for human life. Extraordinary perfection. All that we had seen. Good. Now, what I want to do is twofold. We want to look at Bereshit from a completely different angle, from the perspective of the Zohar. The Zohar, of course, presents us with an interpretation of Bereshit. We have it Xerox for you. And it's an interesting digression as to what the possibilities are in interpreting a text way beyond 
The simple meaning. Why am I redoing the Zohar? That's not my question. Is that your question? My question was, why am I doing the Zohar? The mystical formation of the, of the universe. Okay, good. Right. But why is that going to help me? I'm, I'm, I'm looking for something now. It's certainly a legitimate source. To do what? To go beyond the constraints of the text itself. The Pshat. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to necessarily agree with all the modern science. Although we will culminate down the road with an extraordinary text that some of you may have seen by Rabbi Kaplan, Arya Kaplan, who has an interesting work called Resurrection and Immortality, where he finds a Kabbalistic source which places the universe at 14 billion years old. Literally, 14 billion years old. When he had published it, it was a big scam. It was a big scandal. I could just say this. Because that's the text what it says. The Zohar or the Kabbalistic text had taught that. That will be at the end of our discussions. Right now we want to begin with the Zohar and just to see our horizons expanded. We're not, as Jews, as traditional Orthodox Jews, we are not necessarily bound to the shot, simple, straightforward level of reading a bit of sheet. And once, once I have a Zohar expansion, then maybe I could expand even further and see whether or not I could correspond the findings of science to the findings of Torah text. We don't alter anything. Yeah, no. It no. Finds out that it's, no. So this is all true. Of course. We're going to see that. We're going to look at it very carefully. Now, let's expand the question. I want to expand this question. We want to think about the role that Borei Olam plays in this whole entire discussion of science and religion. And we want to expand the question a little bit by getting a good sense of what science teaches us about the universe. And of course, some of you know that we've done this before. That's true. Those of you who are new don't know that we've done this before. But I just want to give you some sense of what we talk about when we talk about Borei Olam. Okay? Let me just say that again. I want to give you some sense as to what we are talking about when we talk about this area of science and religion. Right? Now, from a... um, and this is from all over the place that I've, I've called all of these uh, scientific facts, from many, many different sources. There are some hundred billion galaxies in the universe. A hundred billion galaxies. What's a galaxy? Cluster of stars. Right? There's some hundred billion galaxies, each with an average hundred billion stars. <laughs> Imagine if you sell insurance to every star out there. <laughs> You'll have to worry for the rest of your life. No worry. Now, again, it's an, astound, it's an astounding number. Now, when I read that, and I think of Bore Olam. He's not your neighbor next door. He's not Eddie Levy. It's an extraordinary statement alone. And what this does to me is brings me closer to Adosh Baruch Hu. That's what I'm saying. In all the galaxies, there are perhaps as many as... In all the galaxies, there are perhaps as many planets as stars. There are 10 billion trillion stars in total, and there are perhaps as many planets as there are stars. We have planets, you have possibility of life. So you should raise the question to me, what is the possibility of life on another planet, in another galaxy? Perhaps there's a very good likelihood of that. It's an astounding point. We could find cousins. Should we limit Borei Olam's creative power 
to only creating us? Perhaps not. We'll come to that down down the road if you keep coming back. It's on your shoulders. He raised the question. You're always welcome. In the face of such overpowering numbers, what is the likelihood that only one ordinary star, the sun, is accompanied by inhabited planets? To me, he says, it seems, far more like the universe is brimming over with life. But we humans not yet know. We're just beginning our explorations. Right? That was by Carl Sagan, who was, of course, very known in his, um, before he passed away at a very young age, in his uh, book, Cosmos, some 20, 22, uh, two decades or 20 years ago. Now, furthermore, let's look at this again. So we have 100 billion galaxies, we have 100 billion trillion stars. What is the brightest object in the universe? No, not even close. Quasar. A quasar is the brightest object in the universe. It's the size of our solar system and companies a a number of black holes and it's so bright it burns the intensity of 100 billion suns. 100 billion star suns. 100 billion star suns. That's a quasar. It's the brightest object in the universe. Next, another interesting fact. In 1906, a 30,000-ton piece of ice fell in Siberia. It was part of a comet whose known was named Enki. It was a small piece of this comet which weighed, they estimate, one billion tons of ice. Small comet. The larger comets weighs a thousand billion tons. Right? And there are a thousand billion comets in our solar system. Solar system is a very small, it's right, you know, solar system, right around us. There are a thousand billion comets in our solar system weighing a thousand billion tons. One teaspoon, teaspoon, of a neutron star, which is a star that's dying, weighs 600 million tons. One teaspoon of a neutron star weighs 600 million tons. There's a star in the Orion galaxy that is as large as the distance from the sun to the earth. The sun to the earth, sorry? Yeah, Orion, right. 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 He's, he's, he's a welcome guest because he knows his stuff. The Milky Way galaxy. What's the Milky Way galaxy? Our galaxy is 100,000 times 6 trillion years long. It's 100,000 light years long. A light year, of course, as he will tell you in a minute, we'll look at this in a second, a light year is 6 trillion miles, the speed of light. Uh, if you travel the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second times 60 seconds, a minute times 60 minutes an hour, trillion miles. Light will travel 6 trillion miles in a year. So the distance from this point in the galaxy to that point in the galaxy, Eli's knee, is a 100,000 times 6 trillion miles. It's our small speck of a galaxy, right? From the Earth to the center of this galaxy is 180 trillion miles. From the Earth to the center of our Milky Way galaxy is 180 trillion miles. The closest galaxy is 2.2 million light years away which is very important, as you'll see in a minute, why that's very important for us to know. One second. Our solar system travels 13 million miles. Our solar system, the sun, the earth, and its planets, solar system is traveling around this Milky Way galaxy 13 million miles per day. The solar system, our earth, the earth spins on its axis every 24 hours. It spins around the sun every year, correct? And it travels around 13 million miles per day. And in 200 million years, it, 200 million years, it will 
go around our gas and come back to over here. So, wait, sorry? <laughs> right. A black hole in space has the mass, a black hole in space, we won't explain what it is, but it's a, it's a collapsed star. It's a very intense, um, it's not a hole, it's, it's an intense star that's collapsed upon itself. Dragging in, it drags in all things that's in there. It's like a vacuum. It's gravitational pull. It's so intense that gravitational pull attracts other items in its in its vicinity. It has the mass of 3.5 billion suns. If you can imagine 3.5 billion suns, that's the no. mass. Sorry, no. you can't imagine that. Oh, well, you have small imagination then. And it burns the equivalent gas of one million suns every year. Good. All this is based on the Hubble telescope. We've seen all that. Okay, good. A few more points. Now, the Milky Way galaxy is closing in on the Andromeda galaxy. We are, the whole galaxy is traveling. In other words, we said the Earth is spinning. The Earth goes around, as it's spinning, goes around the sun. The whole solar system is spinning in this galaxy, Correct. So is going around the galaxy. This whole table as the galaxy is as well traveling 30,000 miles per hour. It's traveling towards the Andromeda galaxy. The Andromeda galaxy is 2.2 million light years away, which is 13 billion billion miles away. 13 billion miles, miles away. And we're traveling to that. And we will contact in 5 billion years. That's what it says. Five billion years. So, get ready. Sorry? Four and a half billion years. You'll read it here in a second. But the speed, it's the, speed, it's the distance that light travels. Light travels very fast. You think when you flick a switch, it's instantaneous. But light is traveling from that switch to a light, right? The speed of light, a light year is the speed of light, it's a very important question, that light will travel in one year. It's a, it's a distance. It's a distance. If you take a, here's a light. Here's, I open my light over here. It starts traveling. It travels 186,000 miles per second. Light can travel 186,000 miles per second. Now, if you take that second and multiply 60 seconds, you get a minute. The speed of light from here in one minute will go, let's say, this far. Let's say, let's say go for, for, a, for a day. For 365 days, that's one light year. It's 6 trillion miles. In other words, one light is equal to six trillion miles. Six trillion. That's what a, what's one light year is. So our galaxy is 100,000 of those six trillion units. It's 100,000 times six trillion. It's, yeah. <laughs> okay, wait. A few more points. Okay, good. All of the matter of this hundred billion galaxies that we know about, that's the matter that we have. It's, it's all physical matter, right? All the matter in the universe, we know, as Stanley pointed out last week, is only 1% of the known matter. 99% remains unknown. So there's much more stuff out there that we don't even know about in the universe. By the laws of physics. By the way that things... It's, it's com incredibly complex and intricate, but by the way that things travel and move, there's, there's gravitational pulls. And certain things have to happen. And they don't know why these things are not happening based on what we know about Therefore, they posit there must be something unknown that we don't know about that is making all these things work out perfectly well. Right? Sorry? Dark matter is called. Correct. Good. 
Hubble stars, lumps of energy begin to coalesce to matter. Okay. Newborn galaxies take place every day. Newborn galaxies take place every single day. Uh, galaxies. Stars are born. Galaxies are born every single day. Creation is an ongoing phenomenon. It's astounding. When that, pasu, that line hit me, it's amazing how true that is. Creation did not end. The universe is ongoingly created. The universe in different parts of it. Expanding as it is to on, ongoingly every single day. And of course, galaxies comes to us one, two billion years after the Big Bang. Good. Tov, avo, amorphous, good. Whether the universe will continue to expand or contract depends upon the universe's weight. Because weight and energy, weight and gravity are all tied hand in hand. The more you weight, the more gravitational pull you have. And if there's enough matter in the universe, enough matter, gravity will eventually pull it and it will contract. Right? If there's not enough matter in the universe, then it'll just keep on expanding on and on and on. And what we read last year, if you recall, it had seen that the second suggestion is the more likely, that the universe will not implode, but rather will expand endlessly. So that's one theory about that. Another gas is traveling towards us at the rate of 300,000 miles per hour <coughs> will strike us and, and it will in about 5 billion years. We said that already. Okay, good. Good. Okay. The sun burns at 10,000 degree, 10, degrees Fahrenheit. Is it centigrade? What's more? Maybe the Kelvin. It might be on the Kelvin scale. I didn't write, I didn't write what it was. It's about 10,000 degrees. Okay, whatever it is. The earth rotates on its axis 1,000 meters per hour. And that's it. Okay. Let's look at this for a few more of these points over here. Please uh, share. I mean, only a few copies of it. And just this will give us, and then we'll end this discussion with this notion. Now, the reason I bring this to you again, we read this about three or four years ago, three years ago. And the reason that I re- bring this to you now is because you should be aware of how popular all these notions are. This is Newsweek. It's not a Hadush. The news from the Kaiser is staggeringly improbable and theologically suggestive. I tell you this again because your kids are reading this. Let's see what it has. Now, of course, it's a little bit uh, ironical here. To the American Civil Liberties Union or people for the American way or some similar faction of litigious secularism, secularism, that's non-religiosity, will file suit against NASA. What's NASA? Space agency, right? Why are they going to file suit? Charging that the Hubble Space Telescope unconsciously gives comfort to the richly inclined. Hmm. It's a very funny statement. For people so inclined, science, which is cosmology, is augmenting, not subverting, the sense of awe that undergirds religious yearnings. How is that back to Earth, to the strangely lush speck, the one of practically billion gases, infrared images of the faintest, most distant gases ever seen, to be more than 12 billion times, 12 billion light years. So it's 12 billion times 6 trillion miles away. That's how far the, that's creation, that's Beta Sheet. 12 billion times 6, times 6 trillion miles away is Maaseh Beta Sheet. That is 12 billion light years away, a light year being the distance travel, light travels in a year. Six trillion, right. Some of Congress especially thinks of things granted on ethanol subsidies. Even better festivals can peer to the remote, remote white edge of the universe and see galaxies being born. Now, of course, you know that light comes to us many, many, many years after the light actually takes place. When you see a star out there, 
It's not there any longer necessarily. It takes 200 million years for a star to get to us, the light, whatever the case may be. Because it takes time for light to travel. So what you're seeing in the heavens, distant heavens now, really happened 100 million years ago. Could be. And it's coming to you now. So you're catching... Light travels. Right, what I see... It's not there now. It was. If you're looking far enough. Right. If it's 10 light years away, you're saying, you're seeing it what it was 10 years ago. Depending on the distance. Because it took that Time 10 to get years for that light to So you are seeing the past. You are seeing what it was. You're seeing the past. It was what it was, and now it took time to get to over here. Astounding. Light is not instantaneous. It takes time. It takes time. So it traveled. That event took 160,000 miles per second, comes here, and it got over here 10 years later. Can I take a picture of somebody, mail this to you, it comes to you uh, a year later with slow mail. Your way of under-dramatizing this. no longer around, but you get the picture today. I get the picture. Right, I get the picture. It's extraordinary. So you're, you could see almost Master Beta's sheet. Look what he says. Looking deep into space is looking back in time. Hubble may have seen light emitted when the universe was 5% of its present age. Light cast by stars materializing in the formless dark, we told that prevailed after the instant bright light cast by the Big Bang. Sometimes, past seven years after the explosion, the first stars formed and light returned. Right? We had read this. This is Aviyaz's book. Originally, light was trapped in the plasma of creation. Until the electrons formed, which took a certain period of time, light could not escape. So when light comes after the Hoshik, originally, was, it was, the light is what? The radio magnetic waves. Big bang. It's light, but it's trapped by the plasma of creation. And only when it cools down sufficiently can the molecules form and then light escapes. And that corresponds to Hoshech, darkness, and then Elohim makes light, and then there's Yehi'or, and there's light, and you have Elohim over Hoshech. How could you divide between darkness if it's not physical matter? It is. Darkness was physical matter. And Elohim, Yehi'or, light came from darkness, separating light from darkness. So that's how we corresponded, based on the Ezra's book, this notion. You're referring to the beginning of the Big Bang? That the the moments after the Big Bang. After. Yes, right. Can you explain what they're or after? Yeah, afterwards. Abraham Loeb, a theoretical... says, Suddenly the earth lit up like a Christmas tree. How? This is just a question. Why? That is a really interesting question. One that interests Greg is a book is a fascinating elementary elementary book besides the words. Searching for the meaning in the age of doubt. By knowing the elements of today's astronomers and to ancient theologians, he invests the timeless question of life's meaning with distinctly contemporary pertinence. Leonard Schweitzer tried to establish the numerous galaxies near ours racing away from us and each other at millions of miles per hour. That is, and the fact that the universe is bathed in radiation. Suggested that matter and motion originated rather, as Jesus suggests, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, a stupendous explosion of light and energy. For extravagant implausibility, nothing in theology can hold a candle to what science says about the Big Bang. That's a great statement. For extravagant implausibility, nothing in theology can hold a candle to what science says about the Big Bang. It doesn't make it's impossible. But nevertheless, it is. For a pinpoint of compressed potential, a black hole, a microscopic transparent empty point in primordial space-time, it sent a cosmos. Big Bang sent what out? Space. It created space as it exploded. It wasn't an explosion like a firecracker in space. 
Fire explodes. That's saying, no, Big Bang was the explosion of space itself. Space is created as it explodes. Right? The Big Bang was not in space. Space wasn't there yet. What happened to Ma'asar Bereshit? Space is created with the Big Bang. So it's not a firecracker analogy. And also somebody pointed out that there was not even a bang. Why was there no bang? No sound waves. So it was a silent explosion. So it really wasn't a big bang per se. But okay. It said the cars were holding out at an unimaginable speed. The forces loose were, are remarkable, miraculously balanced. If the big bang had been slightly less violent, this is George Greenstein's book, if the big bang had been slightly less violent, the expansion of the universe would have been less rapid and would soon, in a few million years, a few minutes, could soon have collapsed back on itself. Because if it wasn't a very powerful expansion, then it just would have gone and gone back. Why would it go back? For the force of gravity. So it would have gone back, right. If the explosion had been too slightly, slightly more violent, the universe might have dispersed into a soup too thin to aggregate to stars. And if there's no stars, there's no planets, no planets, no earth, no earth, no us. The odds against us were, and this is just the right word, astronomical. The ratio of matter and energy to the volume of space of the Big Bang must have been within about one quadrillionth of one percent of ideal. How to be perfect? The ratio of matter and energy to the volume of space at the Big Bang must have been within about one quadrillionth of one percent of ideal. This good news from the scientists is that a buoyant view of our being. Life is so improbable, it must have be favored by something. By some first course, which Aquinas everybody gives the name God. It's God. The idea of purposefulness, an idea that science seems for a while to drain from life, maybe make a comeback. Science no longer is just a meaningless mechanism of mere genes and whirling atoms. If the universe seems to desire life, it is odd to say that life is an automated artifice, a rising accident of the cataclysm that was supposed to have to like nothing. It can't be. It's impossible. If the universe seems to desire life, and life is so perfect here, it's odd to say that it's just an, an accident. It can't be an accident. It's too, it's too perfect to be an accident. It had to happen. What stance should humanity take toward a welcoming universe? One of the one of graduates for life which begins to look less like a chemical fluke and more like what one Nobel biologist called an almost obligatory outcome given the conditions caused by the first cause or God. At about the time Hubble, one of the world's first, most advanced scientific instruments, was pouring in the world's old institution, it was weighing in. It's not as Pope John goes to, to the fatal separation of faith and reason. So that extends reason against the culture of spires, many of whom are straight philosophers. What he's saying over here is that we should not denigrate reason. The church is now much more advanced in saying, if reason teaches it, believe it. Don't deny reason. The philosophy is that humanity has progress far enough in such to know the intellectual progress has never become that is truth on the table a chimera in fact because all truth forget that forget that forget that it's cute forget it. it may seem that the times are indeed out of joint when it falls to the bishop of Rome to issue a ringing defense of belief in reasons capacity to the most important truths but then do the world's religions contain tenets more difficult to believe than what science is suggesting good one of the most impressive results of the meaningless accident the chemical food that produced life was the, the man who wrote, Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Shakespeare was writing about society. What he wrote is even more true of the universe. Take but one degree away, untune that string. What follows is not just discord, but eternal entropy and ice. It wouldn't have worked. One degree off, it wouldn't have worked. So what, who was the great tuner? Who's God? 
Science increasingly validates heartfelt neurational eureka response to the cosmic surprise of life. As President the idea of God is slightly more implausible than the alternative proposition that is, given enough time, some green slime could write Shakespeare's sonnets. You see, the, if you don't have somebody doing it, then how did it happen? Can't be. How did it happen? To say no more is what sounds implausible, and that is theologically suggestive. So here's a normal article that you're reading in Time magazine, in Newsweek magazine, and the New York Times about what we are doing here tonight. So all of this, of course, brings us to this the statement in Beta Sheet, which we could do now. Two more minutes, or should we just do it with it next week? All right, maybe next week. I have to go to this. I get nervous for these weddings. Okay, we will continue next week, God willing. Please join us. Thank you.